Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today's parable can be a little confusing because from the surface it may seem as if Jesus is condoning thievery. It's then easy to get caught up in that apparent problem and then desire to dismiss the entire parable. Now, Martin Luther rightly advised that when reading the Bible, where one does not understand it, to pass that by and glorify God. But elsewhere, he, all, he advises that we should take some time in the Word, let clear passages interpret the less clear passages, and try to come to an understanding. Now, when an understanding is impossible, that's when we give God the glory in all things, even in those difficult passages. But I think we certainly can come to an understanding with today's parable. It is good for us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred scriptures, including the parable of the unjust steward. That means it's good for us to dwell on this parable, to seek its interpretation, to come up with some useful applications for our lives, and to rejoice in this teaching that God gives. So let me start by saying that while today's parable extols godly shrewdness, that is, being wise in a godly way, this parable does not teach that we should steal from our neighbor or that we should take from those who have authority over us by adjusting the financial books or to engage in any other type of violation of the seventh, ninth, or tenth commandments. So let's take up today's gospel. Today, I have chosen to read a few verses of the gospel, and then I will expound on them. So in verses 1 and 2, we heard, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Here we have a rich man who is introduced to us. He is also known as the master. So the rich man is the master. He has a manager, and the parable is often called the parable of the unjust steward. So this manager is also called a steward. That would be my preference to have used a translation which calls him a steward because master and manager sound so much alike it can be easy to confuse the two terms. But anyway, we have this manager also known as a steward. He is, of course, underneath the master that is the rich man. And the rich man, he had hired this manager or the steward in order to, to manage the vast possessions of the rich man. And there's two applications that I wish to draw from these initial verses. 
First, it is not wise to hand all things over to the steward. So no matter how reliable others may be, there are some things that God expects us to do. We are ultimately responsible for our own use of the possessions that God has entrusted to us. In fact, our possessions are truly gifts from God, and they ultimately belong to him. And so we must use them wisely. This not only includes the fact that we must use our stuff wisely, which means we use our temporal blessings for the benefit of our neighbor and not just for ourselves to hoard, but also we are to understand when God has given us the authority to manage and then to engage in management of those things. So God has given us a home to manage, and so we manage our homes. God has even blessed many of us with children, and while they're not like a same type of a possession as as inanimate objects, we do recognize that they are blessings from God, and God has given us authority over our children. God has also blessed us with schools and churches to raise our children with knowledge through the schools and in faith through the churches. But here's something that's important. God has given us our children, and so we do not hand all the learning of our children over to others. Now, of course... It's fine to enroll our children in school. We, it is good for us to send our children to Sunday school and Wednesdays with the Word and Catechism classes. But we must recognize that the office of teacher in society is an extension of the office of parent that God has made. And that God has made it for parents to teach their children diligently that they may be trained in the ways of the word of God. And the primary task and instruction of the child stems not from what they get for an hour in church, but what they should be receiving daily from their parents. So we must teach our children, especially the Christian faith, expecting others to do all the teaching, usually results in their own failure. Second, with respect to these verses, we see this word that charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. The Greek word here for charges is only found once in the New Testament, but it is found numerous times in classical Greek literature. That Greek word is diablethe, which is where we get the English word diabolical. In ancient Greek literature, the word often meant slanderous charges, not just a true charge, but a false charge. But sometimes in Greek literature, that word was meant to mean true charges were brought against the slanderous man. So here we have a master who hears of charges, but he instantly 
puts the master manager out, that is the steward out, without giving him a proper hearing. The manager is not given a chance to prove himself innocent. The master instead reacts instantly and gives him notice of his termination. The Eighth Commandment teaches us that we are to put the best construction on everything, something that we can see that the master, the rich man, in today's gospel did not do. Our nation's founders were wise in assuming innocence until proven guilty and providing the right to a fair trial. How much more as Christians must we treat people fairly, being slow to judge and slow to anger? The next verse says, And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. So the manager, he recognizes that he's losing his job. Now what does he do? He now has a terrible reputation in society, so he can't get another job in which he is trained. And he recognizes that he is too weak to be a laborer. And he also, rightly, is ashamed to beg. He wouldn't allow himself to live on the streets bumming off of others. That is a godly shame. Now, of course, he becomes shameless later on some other things, which we'll see in a bit. Yet there are times when we as Christians must recognize that we must be beggars. So he was ashamed to beg, but as Christians, we have to come to terms with that reality that we are all beggars. When Martin Luther died, there was a sheet of paper found in his pocket. It may well have been the very last thing that Luther wrote. The note was very short, and it was simple. We are all beggars. This is true. So the good Lutheran question is, what does this mean? What does this mean? We are all beggars. This is true. We are all sinners who deserve nothing but temporal punishment and eternal death. The Israelites indulged in sexual immorality, and in one day, 23,000 died. Others tested Christ and were killed by venomous serpents. Others grumbled and were destroyed by the destroyer. Our sins, which are not unlike the ones of ancient Israel, earned for us eternal death. We cannot atone for our sin. We cannot make ourselves good enough so that we can attain, on our own, paradise. But that is why the Father sent his innocent Son into this world, who became a man and could then die in our place, bearing all of our sin in his body. Jesus came to pay for our sin and to grant us the gift of eternal life. Jesus, our Savior and our Advocate, bled and died on the cross, so that we are truly cleansed of our sin, so that we are purified, so that we are viewed by our Father in heaven as innocent. This, my friends, puts us in the position then of being beggars. Instead of boldly asserting our own innocence before God, claiming that we've somehow made up for our sins, 
Or instead of trying to explain our sins away as if God will understand and just let us off the hook, we confess our sin and we beg for Christ's forgiveness. We beg that he is our advocate. He is our redeemer. We beg that he is the one who will truly set us free from all that we have done wrong, whether they're sins of commission, things that we've done, or sins of omission, things that we should have done but failed to do. And so we bow our heads in submission to our Lord, and we beg for the Lord's mercy. And he who is faithful and just forgives our sin and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. But you may say, I'm baptized into Christ. Why should I beg? Why should I? Because we remain sinners and our sins keep on piling up. And so we keep on claiming Christ as our advocate and savior. You see, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no shame in begging God for his forgiveness and mercy. In doing so, we acknowledge that we cannot attain salvation apart from Christ, that Jesus alone reconciles us to our Father and gives us the gift of eternal life. The next few verses state, so here the manager is speaking, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now we hear of the unjust steward's final act before he is put out of his job. He goes up to people who owe his master and he says, how much do you owe? Let's write off some of it. Let's basically reduce the amount that you owe to your master. Why? He is trying to earn for himself friends so that they will receive him into their homes when he is out of his job. This manager, the steward, is accused of sin and now he tries to solve his dilemma with more sin. Turning to sin because of sin, whether accused rightly or falsely, is never the right course. When we are punched, we do not punch in return. When we are stolen from, we do not get vengeance by stealing from others. If we are cheated on, we don't take revenge by cheating. Charges are brought against the manager. The master doesn't confirm, but immediately accuses. The manager now steals from his master. What we see here is that sin quickly snowballs. I found it interesting. I came across a report from the South Dakota District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, written 98 years ago in, in 1925. The report said, one of the greatest dangers confronting our Christian young people today is the lax moral tone of the theater, the motion picture as well as the legitimate stage, and the newspaper and magazine press. Plays and comedies featuring marital unfaithfulness, sexual transgressions, profanity, ridicule of the Bible and the clergy, elopements, breaking of engagements, indecent exposure of the female form are shown week after week 
Oh, how this familiarity with sin must finally work to break down all Christian restraint and inhibition and pollute the minds and bodies of countless numbers. I view that this, these words are rather prophetic about how what people were exposed to then simply spirals and gets even worse. So that's, that immorality has snowballed in the past century to the point where our children are now preyed upon by the homosexual and transgender communities. They are allured by easy access pornography online. Lifelong marriage is now despised, and children have become disposable or replaced by fur babies. While in our day, while in one day, in ancient Israel, 23,000 died for sexual immorality, in our day, 65 million babies have been put to death since 1973 in our country alone. The sin, responding with sin, is never an answer. Yet it is written in the final verses of today's gospel, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then Jesus comments, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And of course, since Jesus is commenting on the parable, this also gets us to the main point of the parable. It's not to be like this man and just begin to steal or respond with sin with more sin. Jesus is teaching by way of negative example there, just like he taught by way of negative example by showing a priest and a Levite who refused to help the man who was laying there on the side of the road half dead in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus teaches the error when Christians are not shrewd as the people of the world. Worldly people use their wisdom to advance themselves, as we saw this man doing in this parable. But then what do Christians do? Do Christians use their God-given wisdom and knowledge so that they can make their calling and election sure as the scriptures teach us to do? Will they take advantage of what God offers so that they can be received into paradise? Or will they foolishly forego the gospel and lose their eternal dwelling place through neglect or indifference? Jesus is teaching us Christians to be wise in our use of the gospel. If you want to use the analogy that is found here, you could say, steal for yourself what Christ is offering for you for free. Take what belongs to you. Take with reckless abandon the forgiveness of sins, the gospel absolution, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember each day your baptism by making the sign of the cross and confessing your sin. Know who you are in Christ. Do not give up. Do not slow down. Use the same level of fervor and shrewdness as the people of the world do as they seek to advance themselves. These blessings belong to you. So you are wise when you are teaching diligently the Christian faith to your children. You are wise when you say no to worldly interests so that you can be about your father's business in his house. You are wise when you remember your baptism and engage in daily contrition and repentance that is sorrow for sin and pleading guilty of your sin. 
You are wise when you spend your time each day in the Word of God. You are wise when you spend time in prayer. You are wise when you defy the world's vanities and embrace Christ as your Redeemer. You are wise when you are good stewards of your possessions, giving generously and cheerfully back to your Lord who first gave you what you have in that first place. You are wise when you use your earthly goods also in service to your neighbor. That is why you have your possessions in the first place. And then those who have benefited from your goodness and charity will testify to the Lord on your behalf that you have helped them in this life. This does not mean that you are earning your salvation, but instead it serves as a testimony of your faith that you trusted in the Lord and not in your possessions, and so that you used your possessions to serve your neighbor instead of serving yourself. This wisdom is a sign of true and living faith in the heart. And we shall hear our Savior's promise. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of of the world. That is our goal, to be received into paradise. And so let us use our God-given wisdom and knowledge to attain these blessings and to never let go. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.